Well, uh, welcome to week number six of our study uh, on the life of David. And I just want to begin today by affirming uh, something and having you help me affirm this out loud that all of us know is true. Here it is. God is good. Okay, you were a little slow on that. Let's do it again. God is good. Yeah. And all the time. If you believe that, say amen. It's true, isn't it? God really is good. It's not just that God does good things. God really is good. It is who he is. And all of us, every person in this room, no matter your circumstance in life, we could all testify to the ways in which we have experienced the goodness of God. Now, surely we could also all testify of some dark days and some hard times and some deep valleys. But even in those deep valleys and through those difficult times, here's what we would have to say. When I was in the darkest place in the deepest valley, God was even good in those moments. And we should make it our practice every single day of our lives. We should make it our practice to say so, to say that God is good. In fact, here's a challenge. I want you to jot this down so that you won't forget it. It's my challenge to you today. I hope that from today forward, you will declare in some way the goodness of God every day. Would you make a commitment by the grace of God to try to do that? That every day for the rest of my life, I will declare in some way the goodness of God. Now, you need to do that for a number of reasons, and we'll talk about some biblical reasons why you should do it, but let me just give you a practical reason. You and I are bombarded every single day with a barrage of negative, of opinionated, of critical truth. Uh, 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 well, opinions sometimes true, sometimes not so true. But every single day from every direction, we have all of these of these negative thoughts and negative impressions that are coming to us. And we need to simply say, God is good. And so pray it. God, thank you that you're good. Pray it and affirm it out loud. Tell it to a friend. Proclaim it to your family. Tell it to your kids. Post it on your social media feed. Sing it to yourself out loud. I don't care how you do it, but every single day I want you to say in some way or another, you know, God is good. It is who God is. Uh, in fact, I'm going to turn to Psalm 107. Why don't you do it with me? Hold your finger in 2 Samuel. Turn to Psalm 107. Here you have a song, a psalm by David declaring that God is good. The song begins in verse number one, Psalm 107, verse one, oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Why should I give thanks unto the Lord? Because he is good. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. David says we ought to give thanks to him for that, for his mercy endures forever. Verse number two, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So if you've been redeemed and you know that God is good, then you ought to say so. Now, I want you to look at verse number 8 of Psalm 107. You will see the exact same refrain in verse 15, in verse 21, and in verse number 31. It's exactly the same verse in all four of those cases. Here's what David says. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. 
You know that the psalms are songs, right? And so when you see a psalm with the exact same refrain repeated periodically, in this case four times throughout the psalm, you immediately can recognize this is the chorus of the song. It's the same idea as if you were looking at a hymnal today and you saw verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and the verses would be different, but the chorus would always sing the same refrain. It would affirm the same truth. Well, in Psalm 107, verses 1 through 7 are a verse. Verse 8 is the chorus. Verse 9 through 14 is a verse. Verse 15 is the chorus. Verse 16 through verse 20 is the verse. Verse 21 is the chorus. Do you see? It is the refrain, oh, that men would sing, that men would declare the goodness, uh, or would praise the Lord for his goodness. And then you come to the conclusion of the song, song or the psalm. It's in verse number 43. Psalm 107, verse 43 says, Whoever is wise and whoever will observe these things, even they shall understand. It is the loving kindness of the Lord. Everyone who understand these, understands these things will, will discover that it is the loving kindness of the Lord. Well, what things are we to understand? In other words, how is it that God's goodness, which, has, which is uh, sang, sang about in the chorus in verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, verse 31, how is his goodness seen as declared by this psalm? Well, verse 2 gives us one example. Look at verse number 2. It says that he has redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. Now, let me take a quick poll. If you've been redeemed from the hand of Satan, would you shout amen? Amen. Oh, that you would declare the goodness of the Lord and his works among you. He says in verse number six, he has delivered us out of our distresses. Have you ever been in distress and difficulty and found God faithful to deliver you? If he has, would you say amen? Oh, that you would declare the goodness of the Lord. Uh, He says in verse number nine that he satisfies the longing of of the empty soul. He says in verse number 14 that he brought us out of darkness and out of death. He says in verse number 29 that he calms the storms of life. I could go on and on. In each of these verses, he is delineating how that God has demonstrated his goodness to us. And then he says, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And in verse number 43, When we do so, when we recognize these things, we will understand that it is the loving kindness of the Lord. So I want you to take your pen and I want you to circle in verse number 43 this word, loving kindness. Whoever is wise will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. What you may not know is that the word loving kindness, or the word that's translated loving kindness is the exact same Hebrew word as you find in verse 8, as you find in verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31, this word goodness. It's the same word. In the chorus of of this psalm, he is singing about, declaring the goodness of God, and in the end of the psalm, he says that this goodness is God's loving kindness. The Hebrew word is the word chesed. Now, we would say it hesed, but if you were speaking in Hebrew, you would add the guttural sort of to it. So you would say hesed. You want to say that? You want to speak a Hebrew word this morning? Say it. 
All I heard was a chesed. And the word chesed means the long uh, extended or the continuous, uh, we would say it this way, the relentless, ongoing, loving kindness of God toward us. It's simply to say this, that every day of my life, in the morning when I rise, until at night when I lie down, when I'm sleeping, he's watching over me in every circumstance of my life, on the mountain peaks and in the valleys, and every single day of my life, here is the fundamental fact of who God is. He is chesed. He is good to me. If you believe that, would you say amen? God is good and all the time. God is good. And David says we should say so. Now go back to 2 Samuel 9 because in this passage in 2 Samuel we learn that David not only wanted to say so that God was good, he had experienced the chesed of God, he had experienced the loving kindness and the goodness of God. He wanted people to say it but he also wanted to share it. He wanted to give it away. He wanted to take the goodness of God that he had received and in turn and offer that goodness to someone else. I want you to circle in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, verse 3, verse 7, circle the word kindness in each of those verses. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 9, the kindness. Verse 3 says it, says it uh, very uh, specifically, it is the kindness of of God. Well, do you know what the word is that's translated kindness in verse 1, verse 3, verse 7? It's chesed. It's the goodness or the kindness of God. David wanted to take the kindness from God that he'd received and he wanted to pass it along to somebody else. By the way, you should want to do the same thing, right? You should desire to let God's goodness flow into you and then flow through you to others. You can either be a pond or you can be a river. And let me tell you, ponds are not nearly as good as rivers. Ponds are places where water flows into and then it stops right there. And if a pond has no output, eventually it will become rather stagnant, right? It'll become scummy. It'll, there'll be pond scum uh, on, the, on the surface of that. There'll be mosquitoes flying around. It'll be a kind of a smelly and a nasty place. Now listen, you don't want to be a smelly, nasty, scummy Baptist. Amen? You don't want to be a, you don't want to be a pond. You want to be a river. Because rivers are teeming with life and rivers produce life and, and rivers being, bring blessing everywhere that they go. And this is how we should want to live our lives, that the goodness of God flows to me. I don't want to just receive it and hold it and say, God, thank you for being so good to me. Now I want to receive it and then I want to pass it on. The Bible says that we should do this. As you have been forgiven, so you should forgive others. Scripture says, as you have received grace, so you should offer grace to others. The Bible says, if, as you have received salvation, now you are indebted to everyone that you know to pass along that message of salvation to them. We should be interested in, we should be burdened to make sure that we are giving away the goodness that God has given to us. 
Now, I should say to you that you have to be intentional to do that. It doesn't happen automatically. Our default is to be selfish, self-focused people. This is the fallen uh, trait of our nature. We just want to receive it and keep it right here. But God says, no, I want you to give it away. So you have to be intentional to do that. In fact, let me, let me give you a challenge right now. You've received salvation. You should be interested in giving that salvation away or helping other people come to faith in Jesus Christ. As you know, we're always training people to share the gospel around here, and you should be interested in being trained. And if you have no interest in being trained at all, if you have no interest in knowing how to give away the message of salvation, then I would suggest to you that you're becoming a scummy pond. (laughs) I'm joking about that. But you should be willing to be trained to pass it on. And so let me encourage you. We have a class beginning in just a few weeks on uh, March the the 3rd, Wednesday night, an evangelism training class. We call it We Share. Do something about it. Register for it. Go by the information center today on either campus. Register, go online and register and say, hey, I'm going to do that. I want to take the goodness of God in my life and I want to pass it on. Well, that's what David did and it's what 2 Samuel 9 is all about. One of the most compelling stories, I believe, one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you beginning in verse 1. You follow along. It's 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. The Bible says, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? Now, notice, David's not just being nice. He's not just saying, I want to be nice and be known as a benevolent king. No, he's saying, I've received the the hesed of God, the goodness of God. I want to now give that goodness of God away. It's not David's goodness or kindness. It's God's kindness that he wants to pass along. Verse 3, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, well, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, where is he? And Ziba said unto him, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and fetched him or brought uh, Mephibosheth, out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Verse 6 says, Now when Mephibosheth, that's the name of the son of Jonathan, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence or paid homage to the king. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness, chesed. I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And I will restore unto thee all the land of Saul thy father. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. And Mephibosheth bowed himself to the ground and he said, What is thy servant? Who am I that you should look upon such a dead dog? As I am. 
Then the king called unto uh, called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to his house. Thou therefore, you and your sons and your servants, shall till the land for him, and you shall bring in the fruits, so that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table. Circle this or underline it in verse 11. He shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. If ever there were a rags to riches story in the scripture, this is it, to be sure. Now, I should tell you uh, that Mephibosheth had every reason to fear King David. Um, He had every reason to hope that King David had no idea that he was even alive. The best strategy that Mephibosheth could have had to survive, in his mind, would have been to remain in the shadows and to never stick his head up and be identified as the son of Jonathan. He knew all too well the fate of defeated kings in that day and their sons. In fact, he knew what had happened to his own grandfather and his father. His father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul, when they were defeated in battle by the Philistine army. Now, I don't want to be too uh, graphic in my description, but I will just tell you what the Bible says. When King Saul, the king of Israel, was defeated by the Philistines... He and his sons died in battle. Then their bodies were taken by the Philistines and decapitated. And their headless bodies were hanged on the walls of a city called Bethshane to be on display as the defeated ones who had been beaten by the Philistines. And Mephibosheth knew what had happened to them. He knew what happened to kings and their sons when they when their dynasty fell to another empire. And so, as a descendant of King Saul, as a prince of Israel in the family of King Saul, Mephibosheth would have logically been, and by his own estimation, he was public enemy number one to David and the Davidic dynasty. And yet, the text tells us that David had something better in mind Than revenge. Verse 3, did you see it? He wants to show unto Mephibosheth the kindness of God. And so, learning that Mephibosheth is alive, he sends for him, brings him up to Jerusalem, and ultimately restores to Mephibosheth everything that he lost when Saul's dynasty fell. It is a beautiful picture of kindness. It is a beautiful, it's a matchless demonstration of the benevolence of King David. But as we know, motivated by the kindness that David had received from God himself. It is is a beautiful story of chesed. Yet in this story, I see a beautiful picture of the gospel. In this story of Mephibosheth, I see myself in him. And I bet you can see yourself in Mephibosheth as well. I want to unpack that for you 
just for a few minutes together today. If you're a note taker, I hope you'll write down that this story reminds us of our condition without Christ. It reminds us of our condition before we meet Jesus. Mephibosheth um, is a representative of every single person before we meet Christ. By the way, we all have a before story, don't we? We, we all have uh, the, the story, the testimony of who we were before we met Jesus. Now, if you met Jesus when you were five years old, six years old, ten years old, your before story is just as dramatic in terms of your condition as that person who meets Jesus later in life, but the, the tales that you might have to tell may not be as gripping as the tale of the person who comes to faith in Christ later on in life. But we all have a before story. In fact, that, that is how you should craft your testimony. You know this, don't you? If you say, well, I don't have a testimony. I don't, I don't know how I could even tell anybody what God has done for me. It's really simple. You just tell them about what life was like before you met Jesus, Then you tell them how and when and where you met Jesus, and then you tell them how your life looks differently after you've met Jesus, right? That's your testimony, before and after, what it was then, what it is now. And I just suggested uh, suggest to you that if you say, well, my life doesn't look any different. I, I've met Jesus and my life looks exactly the same. Then that's a problem with your testimony. Let somebody help you with your testimony because Jesus makes a difference in life. Amen? Mephibosheth could testify to that. It made a difference in his life. Well, this story of Mephibosheth is uh, representative of our condition before we met Christ. How so? Well, look at it. The Bible tells us in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 6, and in verse number 7 that Mephibosheth belonged to the wrong family. This is part of his story. He belonged to the wrong family. Verse number 1 speaks of the house of Saul. Over and over, this passage references the house of Saul. The house of Saul would be the, 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 uh, the dynasty of Saul or the empire of Saul. It would be Saul, King Saul, and his sons and their sons, that family through which the throne, the power in Israel would pass had David and his house or his dynasty not come to power. Mephibosheth was born into the wrong family. Now, it really wasn't any fault of his own. We don't get to choose our family, do we? We're all born into the family that we're born into. We don't, we don't get to pick that. It is the family of Saul into which Mephibosheth was born, and that, by default, made him the enemy of the house of David. It made him the enemy of King David because he was the descendant of King Saul. Another way to say this would be to say that Mephibosheth, while he had no control over the family that he was born in, he was marked by the family that he was born into. So were you. So was I. We were all marked by the family that we were born into. That's true in a very limited sense in terms of our nuclear family, but it's also true in terms of our being born into the family of God. I'm sorry, into the family of humanity, the family of Adam. We are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We were born into the family of Adam, and Adam's rebellion, Adam's disobedience has marked all of our lives. To be a human is to be a sinner. 
Now, the Bible says this, right, over and over again. I'm going to give you one particular passage. Romans chapter number 3 says, For there is none righteous. How many are righteous? Shout it out. How many? None. That means nobody in this room is righteous. There's not a single righteous person in the world. We're not born righteous. We're born unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says in Romans 3, For all have sinned. How many have sinned? Shout it. All of sin. To be human is to be a sinner. And to be a sinner is to be the enemy of God. Now, you say, well, I thought God loved me. He does. In fact, he commands us to love our enemies. And it is the amazing grace of God that the holy, perfect God, whom you have positioned yourself against in your own sin, still loves you. But make no mistake about it, to be a human is to be a sinner and to be a sinner is to be the enemy of Almighty God. This was the condition of Mephibosheth. By his birth, in the family that he was born into, he was the enemy of David. Second thing about Mephibosheth that represents our condition without Christ is that Mephibosheth was crippled by the fall. He was crippled by the fall. Listen listen to how this is uh, verbalized in verse number 3. The king says to Ziba, hey, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? I want to show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba said unto the king, well, Jonathan has yet a son. Jonathan, uh, who had been David's friend, as you know, had had a son. That son was still living. Um, He doesn't even call his name, Ziba doesn't, in verse 3. He just says he has a son who is lame on both of his feet. He is lame on both of his feet. Now, the word lame means, at the very least, that he had a severe limp. In all likelihood, it probably means that he was paralyzed and completely unable to walk. We don't know for sure which of those is the case. In either case, he was handicapped, but he he is said in verse number 3 to be one who is lame on his feet. Well, how was he crippled? How did this happen? Turn back two pages to 2 Samuel Chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, and listen to verse 4. Uh, that verse says, and, Jonathan's, uh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame uh, on his feet. Uh, here's how it happened. He was five years old when the news came of Saul and Jonathan, who had been defeated in battle. It came out of Jezreel, and the nurse of Mephibosheth, or the caregiver, the babysitter, if you will, of Mephibosheth, uh, upon hearing that Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle, she sweeps him up and begins to run. Knowing that the dynasty has fallen now, she just begins to run in panic. And it came to pass that as she made haste to flee, that he fell. She dropped him. She stumbled. She maybe fell on top of him. Whatever happened, she sweeps up this five-year-old boy in her arms. She begins to run, and in running, she falls. Mephibosheth hits the ground, and the result of the fall, verse 4 says, is that he became lame on both of his feet. He He was injured. He was in all likelihood paralyzed by that fall and the injury. Why was he lame? Because the fall had happened, and someone else's fall resulted in his being crippled. I want you to listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 15. It says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death 
passed upon all men because all have sinned. I want you to hear this pastor this morning. I want you to listen carefully to me. Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. And Romans 5 says, because Adam fell, you and I have now been crippled by his fall. His fall became our fall. His death became our death. And I can identify with Mephibosheth because I too have fallen. And you and I have become helpless in our condition, helpless to change our circumstance. Well, Mephibosheth belonged to the wrong family and he was crippled by the fall. And as a result of both of those things, he found himself as an outcast. Write that down. It's representative of you and me without Jesus. Mephibosheth was an outcast. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse number 3, is there not any left of the house of Saul that I can show him the kindness of God? Ziba said, well, there's one. Jonathan has a son. He's lame on both his feet. Doesn't even call his name. And the king says... Where is he? Now, I love this. Now, I'm, I might be inferring a little bit into the passage. Forgive me for doing so, but I get the sense that when Ziba answers, his answer is not, yes, sir, there's a boy, and you should go get him. It was, well, I mean, there's one, but he's a crippled boy. He's not anyone that would do you any good. He's not even anyone that could be any threat to you. He's not even worth you're taking notice of. I think that's Ziba's attitude. There's one who's lame on both his feet. And the king's instant response is, where is he? You see, this is the goodness of God, isn't it? That people who can do him no good at all, who bring no value to the equation of who God is, he learns of us, he knows of us, and he says, where is he? I want to go get him. He says in verse number four, where is he? Ziba says in answer, well, he's in the house of Machir, uh, who is the son of Amiel, and he's living in Lodabar. He's exiled from Jerusalem. Remember, he's the prince of, the, of Saul's dynasty. He could have, perhaps, have been living in some place of exile where there might be great comfort and great opulence. He might have even somehow been able to negotiate a, a house in Jerusalem, but rather he's living in exile. He's exiled from the city of God, from the palace in Jerusalem. And the Bible says in verse 4, he's living in Lodabar. I'll tell you where Lodabar is. If you know much about the geography of the Holy Land, uh, in the Jordan Valley, you have Jerusalem in the mountains, and then down in the Jordan Valley runs the Jordan River. And across to the east bank or the east side of the Jordan River, you're in the country of Jordan, modern-day Jordan today, and Lodabar was on that east side of the Jordan River, up near the, the Sea of Galilee, about middle part of the nation, to the north a little bit, and it's right in the shadow of Mount Gilboa. It's a barren desert land. It's not a place of great pasture. It's not a, great, a, a place of great flowing wheat fields. It's a rocky, barren, almost moonscape kind of place. This is where he lived in Lodabar. And the word Lodabar is, means, this place is called Lodabar because the name means the place of no pasture. Or the place of no bread. The land of no bread. Imagine this condition of this outcast son of King Saul, crippled by the fall, born into the wrong family, completely unable to help himself, living in a land where there's very little food, there's very little 
goodness. He's having to beg for his food. That is his condition. If y'all are tracking with me and you understand who Mephibosheth is, would you shout amen? Amen. All right. I want to tell you something. That picture is my picture before I met Jesus. That picture is your picture before you met Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus today, that is an apt description of, of your life on this very day. Spiritually bankrupt helpless to change your circumstance, a beggar and an outcast, God's enemy by the fall and by our own sin and guilt. It's who we are without Jesus. You listening? But, everybody say but. I will sing of the goodness of the Lord. Amen? I, I will declare the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will declare that God is chesed. His loving kindness never fails. I want you to write this down. I said to you that Mephibosheth is our before and our after story. We talked about how that he represents us in our condition before Christ. But notice also this passage tells us about God's goodness to us in Christ. How that God is good to us and that all of his goodness is is given to us. It flows to us through the person of his son Jesus. You know the word gospel means the good news. And it is the news of God's goodness. It is the news of God's chesed. How do we see God's goodness in David? Well, look at verse number one. Like David, we know that God thought of us. That's one way that we see God's goodness. He thought of us. Look at verse number one. And David said, is there yet any left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of of God to him. Now imagine Lodabar, there you have Mephibosheth living in Lodabar. He's crippled, he's an outcast, he's living in fear, he's the enemy of the king, he can't feed himself, he's begging for bread, he's living down there in Lodabar, hoping the king never ever learns of him, and he has no idea that up in Jerusalem, in the palace, there is a providential thought process going on. While he's hanging out in Lodabar, hiding for his life, the king is standing in the palace and he says, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if there's any of Saul's descendants left. And he doesn't even know it, Mephibosheth doesn't know it, but the king is thinking of him. You know what the Bible says in the book of 1 John, chapter 4, I believe, it says, we love him, we love Christ, we love God. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Amen. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that he loved us and he chose us before he made the worlds. Now I want to tell you something. That when you were living in Lodabar, in the lostness of your condition before you ever came to faith in Christ, God was thinking of you. Praise God for that. And if you don't know Christ, he's thinking of you today. Well, he thought of us. The second thing that he did, and we see this in David, he called us. This is verse number five. He called us. Verse three, the king says, there any left? Ziba says, well, there's one, the kid down in Lodabar, lame on his feet. Verse number four, where is he? He's in Lodabar. Immediately the king says, go get him. Go fetch him. Verse number five. Now you know that David was a country king. He said, fetch. Or at least it was translated in the King James that way. Go fetch him. David sent and called for him. 
I don't know exactly what that looked like. I could, I could imagine a lot of ways that this might have looked. I'm, I know that Ziba was the one who went to get him. The text says that, that King David sent Ziba to get him. Ziba had servants. I'm certain those servants went with him. This was a royal um, mission, and so there would no doubt have been the king's royal officers going along as well. This would have been a parade of the finest stallions and the, and the mightiest chariots riding into Lodabar. And they would have heard probably before, the, before the, the arrival of this entourage that they were coming. They arrive in Lodabar. And you can imagine Mephibosheth hiding out in the house and thinking, oh man, I hope they're not coming for me. And he, and he hears the voice of Ziba. And I don't know if he remembered Ziba's voice or not. Maybe he was five years old when his dad died. Maybe he might have remembered Ziba's voice. But here's the voice of Ziba. Is this the house of, of uh, Maker, son of Amiel? Yes, it is. You got somebody living here named Mephibosheth? Oh, no, they found me. Yeah, he's in the back room back there. Get him. The king wants to. Are y'all tracking with me? Get him. King David wants to see him. Oh, man, I'm dead. That's the end of my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die for sure. They load him. He can't walk. They pick him up. They load him on a chariot. They take him up to Jerusalem. They bring him in, and they set him before the king. And he's in the presence of the king for one reason and one reason only. It is because the king called for him. Now, listen, can I tell you? The Bible says that no man can come to the Father. Jesus said this himself. No man can come to the Father except the Spirit draw him. Ziba is a type of the Holy Spirit. I remember the night so well when I was an outcast. I was the one who was the enemy of God. I was the beggar who could never help myself. And I remember it like I was yesterday. I was a 16-year-old kid and the Holy Spirit began to call my name and call me to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And I stand before you today for one reason and one reason only. Because when I could not think of him, he was thinking of me. And when I could not call for him, he was calling to me. Well, he thought of us and he called us. And thirdly, he did what David did for Mephibosheth. He redeemed us. Verse number seven, they bring Mephibosheth in. He's bowing down, head down, bent low before the king. David said to him, fear not. Mephibosheth, yes, yes, my Lord, fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan's sake. And he says to him, I will restore to you everything that you lost when the, when the dynasty of your grandfather Saul fell. He redeemed him. He brought him back to Jerusalem and he gave him everything that was lost. Now I want to tell you, I didn't even know when I was a kid, you know, I got saved when I was 16, so I didn't understand all this. I really can't even say that today I understand it 40 years later fully, but I do know this, that when Adam fell, I fell with him. And all that I lost in that fall was more than I could describe. But in Jesus Christ, he has given to me everything that was lost and more. He has restored me and redeemed me. And if you know Jesus, he's done the same thing for you. He thought of us and he called us and he redeemed us. And then number four, he adopted us. I love this about David. He didn't just say, hey, I'm not going to kill you. I'll let you live in freedom. But three times in this passage, he says, I will make sure that you sit at my table continually. 
you are going to find a place at my table. In fact, he says it in verse number 11 very plainly. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Now that's grace, isn't it? He didn't just say you get to live. He didn't just say I'm going to give you back the land of your father, your grandfather Saul. He didn't just say I'm going to, I'm going to restore you to, to a rightful and, and uh, 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 respectful place in society. Here's what he said. I'm going to treat you like one of my sons. Now you imagine this. Let's think of one of David's sons, Solomon, who would become the king. He was the prince that would be the king when David dies. And it comes dinner time, the day that Mephibosheth arrives in town, and they're gathering the sons' kings around this mighty table, and Solomon comes in in his robes. He's ready to come into dinner, and they carry (laughs) Mephibosheth, and they sit him down right beside Solomon. And this broken enemy of the king finds himself sitting next to the royal prince and they both have an equal place. Now, I don't know, maybe you came from a better place than I did. Maybe you weren't quite as crippled as I was. Maybe you weren't quite as whacked as me. But when you and I gather around the table of our father, we have both been adopted on the same level and we gather there by his marvelous grace. We are sons and daughters of God. It's by his mercy. Well, he was an outcast. He was a beggar. That's the same thing that I was. The only hope that he had was the mercy of the king. It's the only hope that I had as well. He was adopted. So was I. So were you if you've been saved. And then you see his response. And it's our only reasonable response to God's goodness. You see it in verse number 8. Upon hearing that he doesn't need to fear in verse number 7 and that he's going to restore everything to him, that he's lost and that he's going to eat bread at the king's table continually, all of that in verse number 7. Then in verse number 8, Mephibosheth bowed himself and said, Who am I? What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? I want to tell you, that's the only reasonable response to grace, isn't it? It's the only way that we should respond when we think of God's goodness is to say, how is it even possible that this God would? And when the Bible says look upon, it means that he would turn. The the word means to, to turn your shoulders to, to face. He says, who am I that the God of eternity would would turn his shoulders and that he would look to me? That response of pure humility and authentic gratitude. I want to tell you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is your story. God has been good to you. He has adopted you. And you no longer have to beg for crumbs out on the street. You are now dining with the king. 